Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. Also, we pray that it acts as an encouragement to you today. We are currently in a series called The Movement, which is a study of the book of Acts. We are specifically looking at God's movement through the early church. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. So glad that all of you are here in person. I love when we get to gather together as the body of Christ and to celebrate, to fellowship, and to worship the Lord together, don't you? It's always good to be together and hear the testimonies of what God is doing in the life of his people here and in this community. And we always are so thankful for that. Those of you who are watching us online at home, we're so grateful that you're able to join us there as well. And those of you at our 11 o'clock mask-only service, Thank you for showing up each week. We consider that you are a valuable part in the life of our church, and we're glad that we can uh, provide this service for you and for your families. Well, you ever plan a vacation, and then when you go on a vacation, you realize this may not have been the best thing to do. This past summer, Chris and I planned to go to Colorado. We had been there skiing before, but we were not able to go because we got COVID. And so we said, okay, we won't go to Colorado in the summer. Let's go ahead and do it in the fall and, or in the spring, and what we'll do is go snow skiing. So this last week, we had booked a trip to Colorado, the two of us, to go snow skiing. We love outdoor activities. We love hiking. We run together. We ski together. We do all of these adventurous things together. So we get on a plane last Sunday, we fly to Breckenridge, and my wife has a stomach bug that night. And she is sick, and so she tries to ski a little bit, but she is worn out. And so I leave her in bed, and I go skiing all day. And I'm having a great time. And I get back, and I want to comfort her and say, honey, you okay? Yeah, I'm feeling better. I'm feeling better. We went out to eat. We got back. Then I got the stomach bug. And the next day, she went skiing all day and had a great time. And then Wednesday, we skied together. And then Thursday, it snowed, and we both come back with this head cold, and I'm all stopped up and I'm kind of lightheaded, so I have no idea what I'm going to say today. So um, you keep track for me, okay? And so we've just coming back on that, and so I'm a little bit under the weather, and so what we're going to do is continue to just work right through the book of Acts together. Take your Bibles, your devices, and open to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Now before we jump in there, let me remind you that we're in a month of prayer and fasting. So we want to encourage you, if you've not already joined with us in this, you can go ahead and do so. Go on our website, scottshill.org slash prayer, and read about fasting. Pick a method of fasting for you and your family, and every day we have some passages of scripture and points to pray over, and as a body, we want to engage together as we seek God in prayer, as families and as a corporate body, and every single week, there's a different focus. Last week, we were praying for churches. This week, we're praying for our community. So join with us as we do that. One other thing, I want to give a great shout out to our student ministry team who did an incredible job last week with our Elevate Weekend. 170 students were here. They packed this place out at 11 o'clock. God has transformed the lives of so many of those students and has set so many of their hearts on fire with the gospel. And I believe that through this prayer time and what God is doing here among us and in our community, we are about, we are on the very edge of watching revival break out in this place. And I am so excited about what God is going to be doing. 
Now, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and strategically, we believe God led us to do this study at this time. Because the book of Acts is a history of the church and how the church moved and fulfilled the plan that Jesus gave for the church in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, and you will receive power, that's the Holy Spirit, when he comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, that's our purpose. And you will share the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The entire book of Acts is about how the gospel has been spread. And we have seen how the gospel was being spread in Jerusalem and people were being on fire for Jesus. And people were growing and a fellowship was so rich. But then God brings this thing called persecution to spread the church out of Jerusalem and into the world. And in Acts chapter 7, we see that Stephen is the first martyr for the faith of Jesus Christ. He is put to death. And we see that Jesus stands in the throne room of heaven to honor the first person who died for him. And then the persecution breaks out in chapters 8 and following. And what we see is the spread of the gospel. I want to show you how quickly the gospel spread through the region once persecution hit. I've got a map here. And this is a map of the Holy Land. And I'm going to walk you through real quickly of what took place. After the death of Stephen, Philip, you remember Philip, was one of those guys that was set apart in Acts chapter 6. He goes up to Samaria, up in this area, from Jerusalem to Samaria, about 40 miles. And he begins preaching to the Samaritans. Remember, they were the despised people. All of a sudden, there is revival breaking out there. And then like good apostles, they hear about it. They want to go make sure everything's okay. So they travel the 42 miles up there. And what happens is what they call the Samaritan Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls on them and gives evidence that Gentiles are going to be saved. So they make the 40 miles back to Jerusalem. And then Philip is told by the Holy Spirit to go to the road that goes to Gaza. And there he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. He leads him to faith in Christ, baptizes him. The Spirit of God captures him and carries his him another 50 miles all the way to Caesarea. And so that's 70 miles away from Jerusalem. We don't hear of Philip anymore until Acts 22. And then what happens is Peter, he begins to make his way. He goes to this little place called Lydda, and he, uh, which is about 30 miles, and he shares the gospel there, and he heals a man. Then he goes another 10 miles to Joppa, and he meets a, a, a lady there who had died. Her name was Tabitha. Her nickname was Dorcas. I really think she should have kept with Tabitha and not Dorcas. You know, you Dorcas you, but I don't know. But he raises her from the dead. And then he goes another 40 miles and he goes to Caesarea and he shares the gospel. And there is a man by the name of Cornelius who gets saved and he is in the Italian cohort. Now remember, the gospel seed is now being planted everywhere because this Ethiopian goes back to Ethiopia. He shares the gospel. This Italian cohort, he goes back to Italy ultimately and he shares the gospel. But that's not all that's happening. At the same time, there is Saul of Tarsus, who is persecuting the Jews, and he leaves from Jerusalem and goes 160 miles to Damascus. And on his way, he meets Jesus Christ, surrenders his life to Christ, Ananias, as we saw last week, prayed over him. And what does Paul immediately do? He begins preaching the gospel. Then there's a group of unnamed believers. Some of them travel 104 miles to Phoenicia to share the gospel. Some of them travel um, 256 miles all the way to Cyprus to share the gospel. Some of them go 300 miles to Antioch to share the gospel. 
And then Barnabas hears about what's happening in Antioch, and he goes 300 miles to Antioch. Paul goes 256 miles to Tarsus. He's up there, and he's sharing the gospel. The work is going so well in Antioch that Barnabas goes 87 miles. He gets Paul, brings him back 87 miles, and they are in Antioch sharing the gospel. That's where we are in chapter 13. In 14 years, the gospel had been spread throughout the region of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in only 14 years, it is now bleeding into the ends of the earth. In 14 years. How many people of that? Scholars suggest that it could be as many as 100,000 new converts in 14 years. Scotts Hill Baptist Church is 42 years old. Can you imagine in the first 14 years of this work having 100,000 new converts? That's what we see is happening. And they are faithful to the gospel. And the gospel is bringing transformation all around the world. And what do we understand is the gospel cannot be stopped. No matter what happens in our culture, no matter what happens in our world, no matter who is in the White House, God is still on his throne and God is accomplishing his purpose with the good news of Jesus Christ. We are proof that the gospel cannot be stopped because 2,000 years ago it began and we are here today as a result of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul would write in Romans 1.8, he says, 1.16, he says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of humanity, that Jesus Christ became the propitiation between God and man, that God would be satisfied by the perfect life and the death of Jesus Christ, that God proved that Jesus fulfilled his desire by raising him from the dead on the third day, that Jesus is alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father, and is ever making intercession for you and me, and that in a relationship with Jesus Christ, as we surrender to him, we have new life. There is transformation that begins within us and works out of us and impacts everyone around us. That is the gospel. And when we get to Acts 13, here we find the most significant church in all of the New Testament. Why? Because it is a gospel-centered church. It is the church from that point on becomes the hub of Christianity in the Middle East. It is that church where the people are on fire. It is that church that we see what happens when the gospel actually transforms people. It is in that church that we see that the very first mission-sending organization in the New Testament. And it is in that church where believers are first called Christians. This morning, here's what I want to do. I want to look at three verses, and only three verses, Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And in there, we find three marks of a gospel-centered church. Now listen, all through this study, we've been talking about those things that are prescriptive 
and those things that are descriptive. The descriptive things just tell us what the church does. It doesn't mean we're required to do them. The prescriptive are the things that God prescribes the church to be and what they are to do. What we're about to look at is prescriptive. It's what God desires of his bride today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask, Father, that you would challenge our hearts today as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Luke is recording these events. He says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manahan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In these three verses, as we unpack them, what we're going to discover are the marks of a gospel-centered church. Now, I want you to hear this. This is the heartbeat of every pastor on this staff. This is the desire of every leader in the life of this church, is that we would be a gospel-centered church. That means we are to be fueled by the gospel. We are to be empowered by the gospel. We are to be driven by the good news of Jesus Christ. And the three marks of a church that is gospel-centered are as following. Number one, there is transformation in relational dynamics. When you are in a gospel-centered church, you will find that relational dynamics that were at once opposing one another are working together with one another. Because there's so many relational dynamics that we come together with every single Sunday morning or whenever we gather together. But when the gospel transforms people, there's one heartbeat, regardless of our background, regardless of our experiences, there is a transformation in our relational dynamics. Let me explain it this way. There's Barnabas who's in the church. You remember Barnabas? Barnabas was that encouraging disciple. We first meet him in Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, this is what Luke tells us about Barnabas. He says, Joseph, that was his original name, was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Barnabas was a great guy. He was one of those guys that was the most encouraging person. You ever, you ever been around an encouraging person? They're always smiling. They like the people that nobody else likes. You're not like, why do they like him? Nobody likes him. And we don't realize that they like us too, so we might be one of those people nobody likes. And so in the midst of this, Barnabas was one of those guys that was so encouraging, the disciples renamed him. Hi, my name's Joseph. No, no, no. From now on, you're Barnabas. Well, my mom calls me Joseph. Don't care. Doesn't matter. You're Barnabas. And when the disciples name you, you're all in. And he was all in. I mean, he used his influence. He used his wealth. He used his generosity to build up the church. This was Barnabas. And then we have Saul. Saul is a persecutor of Christians. He was the spiritual terrorist of his day. He was one of those guys that nobody liked. 
In fact, Barnabas was the only one who would take him in. And people were saying, why is he liking that guy? He's going to turn around and kill him, you know? But Paul was one of those terrorists. We find in Acts chapter 1, verses 3, and Saul approved of his execution, that of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This was Saul. He was a spiritual terrorist. He was the complete opposite of Barnabas. Barnabas was wanting to build up the church. Here is Saul wanting to kill the church. And it would not be a far stretch to say that Barnabas probably knew many of the people that Saul arrested and had killed and thrown into prison. And yet here are these two guys working in the same church. Opposite extremes and now partners of the ministry. But there's a third guy I want to introduce you to. Manahan. We'll just call him Manny for short, okay? Manny is a lifelong friend of Herod Antipas. It says Herod the Tetrarch. Now, if you know anything about the Herods, it is not a good thing to be friends with them. The Herods were some dysfunctional people. Let's start with Herod the Great. Herod the Great was one of the most paranoid people of his day. He had his brother-in-law killed. He had some of his sons killed. He had his favorite wife killed. Now, how would you not like to be her favorite, his favorite wife? So he had them killed. He was paranoid. He's the one who killed all the babies in and around the Bethlehem area after Jesus was born. I mean, Herod would be a huge supporter of Planned Parenthood today. I mean, this is the guy that was so dysfunctional. On the day of his death, he commanded that the most respectable people of Jerusalem would be murdered so that at least somebody would be weeping the day he died. That's the kind of man he was. He had some sons, Philip, and he had Antipas. And Antipas is the one that we're talking about here. Antipas actually took the wife of Philip and married her. Talk about an awkward family reunion, you know? Hey, Antipas, hey, Philip. You know, um, it was a difficult thing, but that's the kind of dysfunction they were. Manahan was friends, lifelong friends of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one, if you would remember, who had taken the head of John the Baptist at the request of his wife's daughter. Very dysfunctional. Biblical counseling is much needed in this family. And then what he does is Herod Antipas hears that Jesus is a Galilean. And when Jesus is on trial, he gets to interview Jesus. He's all excited. This magician's coming. You know, this David Blaine is showing up tonight. And I want to I be entertained by this guy. This is who he is. And Manahan grew up with this guy. They were lifelong friends. Some scholars say he may even been a stepbrother to him. What is the point? When you look at all of these characters that have been transformed by the gospel, we see no longer the divisions and the different goals and the different approaches. God seems to take people from the darkest corners of earth and uses them for the brightest lights for his glory. And he always does that. Let me put this picture in modern day terms. It would be like if a group of people wanted to have a prayer rally for our nation. And that group of people would be made up of these. 
a group of folks from Black Lives Matter mingling with Blue Lives Matter, and the two speakers would be AOC and Candace Owens. <laughs> and then you would see the people who would be covering it would be Chris Cuomo and Tucker Carlson. <laughs> and the analyst would be Wolf Blitzer <laughs> and Britt Hume. And you would say that would never happen. It wouldn't, except for the gospel. The gospel. Do you see the need for humanity? Relational dynamics cannot be changed by politics. Relational dynamics cannot be changed by policy. Relational dynamics cannot be changed by a university. Relational dynamics can only be changed through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that radically changes our hearts and we become one. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What the world needs most is the power of the gospel to change our thinking and to change our lives. And what we need is to recognize that it's only through the message of the gospel that we have things in common. You know, there are people in this church here this morning who would never have had anything to do with the other people in this church but for Jesus. Let me give you some of the backgrounds of some of our people. We've had people here who have served prison terms, but Jesus changed them. We've had police officers who put those people in prison. But Jesus brought them together. We have people here who have served as, as um, strippers. And now they serve in crisis pregnancy centers around the state. We have individuals here who were hell's angels. We have individuals here who were adulterers. We have individuals here who were drug addicts. We have individuals here who were involved in just about every kind of scheme of sin across the horizon. And yet through Jesus Christ, he's brought us together and he's made us one. You see, it's in Jesus that that relational dynamic is changed. And when we try to go to the culture to change us, when we try to go to the world to change us, it never happens. We still remain in our separate identities, opposed to one another's. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have different opinions. We do. But at the end of the day, those opinions are secondary and third compared to the transformation that happens in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you, if you're here this morning and you're saying, oh, you don't know me, I've gone way too far beyond the grace of God. No, you haven't, my friend. No, you have not. You might say, you don't understand the kind of pain that I brought people through. Jesus does. And he died for you. And he is here for you today. And he offers forgiveness and grace to you to be a part of a family 
that will love you no matter where you came from. We even have people here who serve together, who are, have been at odds, and it's only through Jesus Christ that it shows that we can work together as brothers. I mean, after all, we got Jim Dunn, who's Alabama, and I'm LSU, and we have been together for 25 years. <laughs> but here's the point. A gospel-centered church demonstrates a transformation in our relational dynamics. Regardless of our backgrounds, we love one another, period. Here's the second mark. When there's a gospel-centered church, there's transformation in racial diversity. Now, this is a big topic today, isn't it? But it's nothing new. Dealing with racial diversity is nothing new. We see it all through the, 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 the New Testament church. And as we're looking at the New Testament church, we see over and over and over again how God brings the nations together. These are nations that were taught to hate one another. These were nations that were taught that they were superior to other nations. There's nothing about racism that's new. Why? Because it's an issue of the heart. And every human heart has its prejudices that we have to deal with. Everyone, because of sin. But I want you to see what happens in this church. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manahan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, when you read those names, you might say, yeah, this seems like some diversity there, but it's more than relational dynamics. There's some racial diversity. Let me help you to understand who each of these guys are. Barnabas is from Cyprus. He would have been what's called a Hellenist Jew, which meant that he was not born and raised in Jerusalem. He was not Hebraic. He was a Greek-speaking Jew that lived in another part of the world, in Cyprus. So while he was a Jew, he was a Hellenist Jew. Simeon, also called Niger, the Niger in Latin, the word means black. He's from Africa. He was called Niger, so his nickname was Simeon, the black man. And he was from Africa. He would have had an African descent. So he comes from there. Now here's an interesting thing. Lucius, from Cyrene of Africa, many scholars believe that he was originally from South Africa. Now, when you look at the dynamics of South Africa and Middle Africa, you understand apartheid and all the struggles that took place in that time. And then we find Manahan. This guy was confusing. He was a Palestinian Greek Herodian. He didn't know who he was. <laughs> he was from a mix of relationships. And so he comes from a number of different heritage. And then you've got Saul. He's from Jerusalem. He was born and raised in Jerusalem. He would be a Hebraic Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was the epitome of spirituality in this area. But he was also a Roman citizen. So he had dual citizenship. Now when you look at all of this diversity, you recognize, look at the diversity in, the, in that church. And like I said, these guys were taught to hate one another from an early age. They despised each other's races. But you know what we see through the New Testament church all the way through? 
Is God taking people from all the nations, bringing them together to make them one people? It's not just true of Antioch, but we find it true everywhere. Let's look at the, let's look at the church in Rome. The Apostle Paul is writing some final greetings to the church in Rome in chapter 16 of Romans. He lists 26 different people in there. And of the 26 different people, here's how they break down. This is what it says. 10 were notable women. Phoebe, who had a church in her home. Priscilla, who was the wife of Aquila. Mary, Junia, and for those of you who have twin girls on the way, here are two great names, Tryphena and Tryphosa. <laughs> Persis, Rufus's mother, we don't know her name, Julia and Nerus's sister. We don't know her name, but there are 10 prominent women that are mentioned in his farewell address. There were five who were slaves, Impliatus, Urbanus, Hermes, my favorite, Philologus, and Julia, five slaves. We also find mentioned that there were two very influential, Aristopulus, who was the great-grandson of Herod and a friend of the emperor, Narcissus, wealthy leader of Rome. And then we find that there were three that were related to Paul, Andronicus, Junius, and Herodian. We find that there was one who was famous, Rufus, the son of Simon of Cyrene. You know who that was? the one who carried the cross of Jesus Christ, Rufus and Alexander, the sons of his, become effective members in the church, and their mother, Paul says, is like my own mother. And we see that they were famous. Then there's kind of a quite odd one. His name is Stachus. His name means corn cob. <laughs> in Hebrew, it relates to Bubba. So, uh, and then there were four relatively unknown. Four unknown. You get the picture? You see the diversity there? And here's what's really interesting. Here's what the gospel never does. The gospel never puts the emphasis on the heritage. The gospel puts the, em the emphasis on the sonship or the daughtership of God. Notice what Paul says in Galatians. It makes so much sense after looking at this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And when there is an understanding of racial diversity, here's what the emphasis is on. It's always on Jesus. It's always on our connection with one another through the blood of Christ. It's not based upon our identities. It's not based upon our tribes. It's not based upon our political persuasion. It's always based upon Jesus Christ. Now what's interesting, what remains intact is the fact that Simon is from Africa. Lucius is from Cyrene. God doesn't take away the specific identities of where they come from. But the emphasis is always on Jesus. There's no such thing as a black Christian, a brown Christian, a white Christian, an Asian Christian. Instead, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We are brothers, sisters in Christ who may happen to be black or brown or Asian or European. He doesn't take away the uniqueness of who they are, but they are all under the same banner. I want to tell you there'd be three reasons I would leave a church. Three reasons I would exit a church. Number one, if there's heresy being preached from the pulpit, I would get out of that church as quickly as I could. Secondly, if there's immorality that's not being dealt with, I would leave that church. Thirdly, I'll say four. Thirdly, if there's financial irresponsibility from the leadership of that church and they do not want to deal with it honestly. And fourthly, if there's a racist spirit, I would leave that church. Because that is contradictory to the gospel. We hear a lot about today about critical race theory. And a lot of people are taking the different positions on what that means and what it doesn't mean. It was a time when you would have to say that all people should be colorblind. In fact, if you didn't say you, we are colorblind, you were considered a racist. Today, if you use the phrase colorblind, you are considered a racist. And so our culture keeps shifting, as you can see. But the gospel never changes. Because in Christ Jesus, the ground at the cross is level. And not one of us deserves his grace. But only through his grace do we have a relationship with him and with one another. The heartbeat of your leadership here is that we would be as racially diverse as we could possibly be. And that there would never be an option, never be an opportunity for us to ever say to any person, you're not welcome to come here and hear the gospel. We will never put ourselves in that position because we want to reach as many people with the gospel as we can. Here's a third thing, and I'm going to have to go through this quickly. I always say that, and you know I never do. <laughs> there is transformation in revelation and discernment. This church understood the revelation and the will of God. They sought the heart of God. And every single church that has been transformed by the gospel is a church that has a heartbeat for hearing from the Father, walking in the gospel of Jesus and in the power and the prompting of the Spirit of God. I want you to notice what it says here. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. There were two things that they understood. And there were two things that they sought for. The first thing that they sought for was knowing God's will. This was a church that wanted to know the will of God. Now there are a lot of ways that you and I can understand the will of God. All through the book of Acts, we see some supernatural things happening, such as visions, when Peter has a vision of Cornelius. And God can still speak through visions and dreams. In fact, he is today. You know that there are countless Muslims who are coming to faith in Christ in the Middle East through dreams and visions right now? That the Spirit of God is working through the Muslim world in the most unique of ways, where people are having dreams of Jesus, sharing the message of the gospel with them and they're coming to faith in Christ. But I have to say, you have to be careful with those things. 
Because a lot of times we have these impressions and these dreams and they're really just nothing but the result of bad pizza the night before. <laughs> so we have to be careful with that. I have a quick illustration, but I don't have time to share it with you, so it really ain't quick. So, but, but let me give you three things when it comes to understanding God's will that we need to know. Number one, searching the word of God. No vision or dream should contradict anything said in the word of God. I have said this here for years and I will continue to say it until I take my last breath. This is the filter for your life. This is the filter for your life. Every thought, every emotion, every action, everything I do, think, say, hope for must be filtered through the word of God. If I have an emotion that doesn't line up with the word of God, you throw the emotion away and you keep the word of God. We walk by this and we search the scriptures to know what is true. Secondly, we seek through prayer. We pray. They were praying together. It says they were fasting. We call out on God and we trust him and we know that we need his wisdom in all that we do. So we seek the word of God. We pray together. And here's a third one, submitting to the Holy Spirit. We need to submit to the spirit of God when he prompts us in a specific direction. And that means I must be in tune with his word. I must be in prayer. And then the Holy Spirit will prompt me to do what we need to do. I want to tell you the leadership of Scotts Hill, this is how we operate. We are always operating in what does God's word say? What do we sense in prayer? What do we sense the Holy Spirit of God is moving us towards? When our elders meet together, when our pastors meet together, this is what we seek for all the time. There are one or two ways churches will operate. They will operate either in pragmatism, and pragmatism is a man-made approach to try to accomplish something supernatural. It never works. People would, that are in pragmatic churches say, well, let's try this. Well, maybe if we did this thing, maybe if we did this event, maybe if we had these lights, maybe if we had, had, had um, some, some machines that put out haze, maybe if we had the right kind of music, maybe if we had this. They're always looking for something to attract people. The problem with that is you've got to find something better next year. But when you keep in step with the Spirit, you never get better than that. And you follow the Spirit of God. This was a church that sought the will of God. But here's the second thing. They understood doing God's work. Doing God's work. There are two things that they learned through this. Number one is recognizing God's call on others, Paul and Barnabas. They were there for two years, teaching, discipling, loving, pouring into these people. And as they did these things, they demonstrated great connection with them. And the people recognized that. I want to tell you at Scotts Hill, what we're constantly doing is we're watching the young men and the young women in the life of our church. And as we watch them excel and we watch them to be able to grow, we start being, paying attention to them. We put markers on them. We ask them if they would consider being an intern. And then we, if you look around at our staff, most all of them have come up from this body which is the healthiest way to build a staff. And you can see across our staff all the people who are involved, but we want everyone to be involved in finding their gift and serving in the life of the church. This church understood the importance of using spiritual gifts, but here's the second thing, releasing God's servants. This was huge. You know who the Holy Spirit told them to release? The two greatest leaders in the church. 
Send off Paul. Send off Barnabas. They could have said, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, God. What's going to happen if we send him off? What's going to happen to us? We don't want to send those guys off. We want to hold on to them. And there's a danger for Christians today in America. And that danger is this. We tend to love the vessels more than we love the one who is working through the vessels. We see it all across America. We love the vessels more than we love the one who's working through the vessels. So what do we do? We don't care what they do. We don't care what they think. We don't care how they act. They're the face of this church. If we lose them, we lose our influence. And as a result, you've got churches whose pastors are involved in immorality and have never been addressed. And the churches are falling apart. You've got ministries such as Ravi Zacharias who had some immoral, sinful issues of his life that have never been dressed, and you're watching it fall apart. So what does that mean? That means, listen to this, you can give thanks to the leaders that you have, but don't praise the leaders. Praise the one who is working through your leaders. Some of you have been profoundly impacted by some of the staff here at Scotts Hill, and we're thankful for that. But what you do is you thank them, you honor them, but you praise God. You praise him. And you release those leaders when God sends them away. Now, why am I sharing all this? I'm not going anywhere. (laughs) I'm not sharing it because of that. I'm not setting up some resignation speech. Had somebody come to me a couple of weeks ago and sent me a long email and said, I'm just amazed at how God uses you through the teaching and how it's impacted our family. I sent them back. I said, I'm amazed at how God even wants to use me. Because listen, I know me. I know me. I'm not all that smart. I'm not. If you don't believe me, check my computer. Spell check can't even figure out some of the words I'm trying to spell. I'll write a word out and it'll say, nope, try again. Write another word. No idea. Write out another word. I have all access to the internet. Don't know what you're trying to say. (laughs) But the truth is this. God wants to use you in some profound ways as we keep in step with the Spirit of God and His Word and we walk together as this kind of church. I'm about to lose my voice. I've got one more to go. But here's the heartbeat of the Lord Jesus for Scott's Hill. You want to hear it? Here it is. Relational dynamics. Jesus is who ties us together. No one else. Everything else is secondary to him. And if you're here today and you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, my friend, let me invite you to surrender your life just like Trevor did in that video. Give your life to Jesus. He will transform you from the inside out. And regardless of who you are, he will love you. He will never not love you. And we will never not walk with you. Racial diversity. Oh, I wish that we were more racially diverse. I wish we were. And the way to to move into that is to recognize that we have a lot of work in reaching 
our brothers and sisters of color with the message of the gospel. Thirdly, revelation and discernment. We walk together to seek to know his will and his work. Now, I have a lot of people who ask me, both of your kids are in Atlanta. Your grandchildren are in Atlanta. We know that you're eventually moving to Atlanta. Uh, no, <laughs> I have the beach. <laughs> I'm not finished. I have their surfboards. <laughs> They're coming home. But there is going to be a day when God says to me and to other leaders, your work is finished. Your time is done. It's time to go. And when we do that, we need to be a church with open hands and say, we will not panic because Jesus is the head of this church, not anybody else. And we walk together in that. That is a gospel-centered church. Let me ask you this. Will you make a commitment to be part of that kind of church? That Jesus is the banner over us. That only in the grace of God can any of us stand before him. And we seek to serve him and release people as the kingdom demands. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving me the voice to accomplish this. I pray, Father, that your spirit would strengthen me for the next service. And I ask my brothers and sisters here to pray with me over that. But Father, may you challenge us today in helping us to see that this is a prescriptive thing for your body, that we would move in obedience towards that. Father, for those here and watching online who may not be believers, I plead with you, I plead with you to surrender your life to Christ today. If you need a place of hope and you need a place of love, we want to invite you here. For we make a commitment to love you and walk with you through the most difficult times of life, through the most joyful times of life. And Father, may we recognize that your kingdom expands to people all over the world. And may we embrace those all who need Jesus. And Father, that we would walk in truth and trust you in all things and release when we need to release, embrace when we need to embrace. Thank you, Father, for this full room today. Challenge us in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Scotts Hill podcast. And thank you also to those who continue to give with generosity. If you're new to this podcast and want to learn more about Jesus or our church, go to scottshill.org slash next steps for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. 
You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it onto your social media stories. Whatever you wanna do, just make sure to tag us at Scott's Hill. Until next time.